You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. It's now time for another deep cut look at the physical releases of films. That's what we do here on Digital Noise. Joining me, as always, is Dr. Sir Lord Duke Earl John Golson. Yes, thank you, Christopher. Thank you so much for joining this little here podcast. I'm so glad to get your opinion on these. I do love cinema. <laughs> I don't know where to go with this bit. <laughs> Oh, was it a bit? I, I had something know. in my throat. Oh, uh, yeah. I was trying for something. I was like, <clears throat> I John's an cinema. improv comedian. He'll make it funny. <laughs> Sorry. Accents are not my strong part. My wife always says, you can do any accent great for five seconds, and then it turns into Bella Lugosi. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the reasons I never did improv comedy. I I, uh, I did an impression last night. I had to play Robert Smith in a sketch last night. What does Robert Smith even sound like? Uh, he sings. Like, he sings songs. I sang. Well, no, no, I get that. Oh, I'm sure he Are you like... saying you're just doing karaoke or No, what? it was it was like a sketch. I... There's the photo. Oh, you for... dressed up for it, There's even. the photo for the listeners. Wow, yeah. So, <laughs> you all can see that. <laughs> you do kind of look like Robert Smith now. Yeah, that's that was the impetus for it, was I was like... Oh, I kind of look like him, so I wrote a sketch that's like sort of a one-joke sketch where I could play him, and then I did. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. How'd it go over? Uh, it went over great. Yeah. That was like an applause break when I came out, and people were like, ah he's Robert Smith, that was... before before I even got to open my mouth. Which was cool. it more just like heaven or pornography? I sang uh, Pictures of You. Fair enough. All right, so we got a lot of movies to talk about. <laughs> Unless you have something you would like to announce, which I believe you probably do. Oh, you usually say that for the end. Well, go ahead and do it now. You can re- reiterate Are there listeners it. in Seattle? If you're in Seattle and you're listening to this uh, at the Beacon Cinema over in the Beacon Hill neighborhood on May 27th, it's a Saturday, uh, Make Popular Movies, which is a movie that I happen to have the lead role in, is playing at the Beacon Cinema on May 27th at 7 p.m., if you are a listener and you're in the Seattle area and you come out to the screening, I will um, uh, either fist bump you or shake your hand, depending on your own comfort levels. Fair enough. No hugs, though. 
I, I'll hug. I'm a hugger, but I never right. offer that up front. Not right. These days. People get yeah. weird. Back in the day, it was expected almost. You know, I'm an old white guy who hangs around with people like 20 years younger than me. And so hugs can take on. I don't want to be the John Lasseter of the, of yeah. the community. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hugs can take on a different meaning. Somebody wants so. to hug me. I'm fine with it. Yeah. Uh, but like now you're like, oh, okay. I rarely yeah. initiate. Yeah. But I like them. But it I used to be the them. way we all hugged each other. Yeah. Like us old guys still do. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we have a bunch of different types of stuff to talk about this week. Some of which is really good. Some of which is like, I love those times when you go back and you revisit a film after decades and it changed, your opinion is completely changed on it in a good way. And mm. that's our first title, which is The Crimson Rivers, a 2000 French thriller film with Jean Reno and Vincent Cassel. Can you imagine a better French duo? Like seriously, for that period of time, you're like, wow, what? That was basically produced because seven was a hit. Yeah. Uh, and it went on to be very successful in France. And in fact, spawned a sequel with Jean Reno, but not Cassell and a television series that's currently airing. I oh, think I it's on. It's like fourth season. TV series. Yeah. Uh, but it is definitely like, it takes all 20 minutes in this film where you're like, Oh yeah, these guys saw seven and went, <laughs> we want to do that. Yeah. And late nineties were, uh, were infested with serial killer films. Oh yeah, and which I'm a big fan of. And when they're done well and stylishly, and this one, I, in my opinion, was done well and stylishly. Directed by another uh, well-known director, Matteo Kasovitz, who's also, I think he's probably to me he's better known as an actor. I've seen him in a, oh, so many things, but he also steps behind the camera for stuff. It's based on the novel Blood Red Rivers by Jean Christophe Grange. Um, and the, who co-wrote the screenplay with the director. And it's about uh, two detectives who get involved in a series of really, really nasty, hardcore murders around uh, a university c- campus that's, like, hidden deep in the valley of the French Alps. Alps. Um, it's a odd movie, right? Like, in terms... I, it starts like Seven and turns into more like The Name of the Rose. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because uh, it just gets so wrapped up in, like huge conspiracies and stuff. And I think the first time I saw it, that threw me off. Cause I was still just kind of wrapping my arms around seven, holding on like, this is the best one ever. And now I'm kind of more distance and go like, you know what? This is a solid, beautifully shot film that at it's worst feel like both the actors didn't quite know exactly what they were supposed to be doing in terms of their characters. Like Cassell seems like he's a little wilder than he should be. Uh, Renault feels like he's maybe a little grumpier than he should be, but doesn't quite know how to balance that off what Cassell is doing at worst. Right. Yeah. And, and they don't even meet till halfway through the film. Yeah. They're, uh, they're both investigating different murders that they are unaware are related until, uh, until fate brings them together. And they realize that they're the, things that they're working on are actually maybe associated with the same the same case yeah exactly i mean it it does take a while for them to in fact get along uh, or get together and even then they don't really get along uh renault being the more experienced one cassell so the wild young detective type uh but this goes to some crazy places and involves like them traipsing across glaciers and glacier fissures, like rappelling down glacial fissures, looking for evidence and stuff. And like, it's, it's really gorgeous. And the murders are so fucked up and dark and, and like, I mean, like just horribly mutilated and really, you you see it on camera stuff. You can't help but think of that seven connection for that. I think maybe, like I said before, part of it 
the way that it gets so wild into huge ranging conspiracies by, by the last act that that kind of threw me off. I was expecting something a little more direct and you're like, okay, well this gets into this whole, like everybody's involved. <laughs> yeah. It's a little implausible. There's still a lot of, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of got the feel of like a really comfortable novel. Yeah. That, like you're really engaged with it while you're reading it. And then when you read it, you're like, all done. And you sort of like sell it back to half price or put it on your shelf or whatever. Um, it, it has that sort of like comfort food quality, which is a weird thing to say about something that's like about murder this and serial yeah. killers. But a lot of, a lot of airport paperbacks are about murders, <laughs> True. you know, murder mystery. I would stuff. say the bulk. Yeah. Even. Yeah. And, and this to me was like an airport murder mystery as a stylish film. Like <laughs> while you're watching it, it's, there's something really comforting and comfortable about it. And then you get done and you're like, okay, cool. It's satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that if it's one of those ones you avoided because of mixed reviews when it came out, I mean, it was 68% on Rotten Tomatoes, which isn't terrible. But it was mixed. Some people liked it a lot more than others. It's just a little But if you're avoiding it or if you never heard of it, it it's so much more worth checking out than 90% of the rest of the seven imitators that are yeah. out there. You know? I mean, and it is decidedly that to some degree. But it was nominated for five César Awards, the French Oscars, for director, cinematography, music, editing, and sound. Um, yeah, I'm now re-watching it. It kind of got the flavor back for me. Like, I like... Even though I don't think the actors pulled off their chemistry together, I like the setup of it. And I like when I read about what the sequels in the show is doing, I'm like, oh, this sounds right up my alley. Where can I watch the show, please? Is Jean Reno on the show? <laughs> no, he okay. is in the sequel, but he's not in the show, yeah. which is a shame, right? Because like, what is he doing anyway? I, <laughs> I haven't seen Jean Reno in anything in a dog's age. I can't think. I can't think of what the last thing was. Yeah. And we love Jean Reno. Yeah. He was in. Was he in? Wait, is he? He was in, am I confusing? Was he in the uh, Emmerich Godzilla film? I feel like I've seen, I associate him in my mind with Godzilla. That was so he fucking long. That was Godzilla's. probably before this. Because I was like, wait, <laughs> wasn't he in like one of the Kong Godzillas or something? And it's like, oh wait, no. This, I think I'm, I think I'm associating with Emmerich's Godzilla. He was in, uh, he was in 1998's Godzilla. Okay, never yeah. mind. Never yeah. mind. Which was the same year as Ronan, so who cared about Godzilla? Because Ronan's a fucking masterpiece. Yeah. Like, uh, John Frankenheimer's best driving movie. Sorry, French Connection. And arguably the best racing, like, like driving movie ever made, for my mind. Money. I don't know if you've ever seen Ronan. I have seen Ronan. You don't feel the same way. I didn't like Ronan when I watched it, but I was in my early 20s. Maybe I'll like it more now, I, but I really didn't enjoy it. You should come back to it. It's so really good. Maybe I will. It's a classic. <laughs> I was When I think of Heat, the next thing I think of is Ronan. Like, if I'm going to watch Heat, I'm going to want to watch Ronan right afterwards, because they have a feel, a sort of feel that reminds me of each other. You think Heat and then Frozen. No, no. Like it's not a semantic stuff. thing, oh, John. Okay. <laughs> I'm now looking to see what what else he did that recently I've even heard of. And I'm looking, I'm like, wow. Uh, he was like the voice of Musa, Mufasa in the Lion King French dub of it. Uh, yeah, nothing. He's been doing like, he's been in stuff, but nothing you've heard of. So weird, right? He was such a prominent guy for so long. He's been enjoying his time off. Well, I mean, does any actor go, yeah, I just want to do shitty films nobody goes to go see? 
Uh, you know, rather than huge, <laughs> that's arguable. <laughs> uh, there, this is a new release of this from Kino Lorber. It comes the, with the archival audio commentary recorded by the director, Jean Renault and Vincent Cassel. Uh, the investigation, another archival, uh, piece, but documentary focusing on, uh, the production history of this, including clips and uh, interviews with everybody involved. Uh, the car chase, another archival featurette with, uh, Matt, uh with the director. Uh, a really good car chase in this film, I thought. Uh, the corpse, uh, ma- the director again talking about the special effects, mountain sequence, archival looks at th- that, which is indeed a really cool finale. Like the whole big finale, even though it's got a twist that's dumb, but, yeah. <laughs> but fun dumb, uh, is a really cool visual, uh, sequence. But yeah, I really recommend this. I think it's a lot of fun. I think you would probably have fun checking it out. Next up, we have a film I don't feel that way about, The Long Dark Trail. Now, I know John's got a soft spot for the little indies. (laughs) You're going to be nicer to this than I probably was. Uh, But written and directed by Nick, I don't know how you pronounce his name, but Zinakis and Kevin Ignatius. Uh, it's only 79 minutes, so it's not a huge commitment. It's a little horror film here about two teenage brothers, Henry and Jacob, who right in the beginning, we see they basically, in the you know, it's the middle of the night, even though it's shot like it's mid-afternoon. Uh, they have are escaping their abusive father by chaining him up, basically, while he's asleep and then running out. Uh, to find their mother who had left them a long time ago. They have a vague idea of where she might have gone and it involves a long trek through the woods, which means they have to find some stuff along the way to make sure they can actually make it there. They're both pretty young. And somewhere along the line, one of the kids picks up a stone from a burial, a sacred burial ground, which is just so random feeling in this. It was like, this would just be like a voyage of discovery between two brothers, if not for the sacred stone that he pulls up from this. But, you know, ultimately it involves the mom being in a cult, and it's, you know, I can't even hate this movie. At least it was trying for something. It felt like it was reaching for something. It just, it didn't feel like anybody knew how to get there. I like the score. I like the way it's shot. That's like saying, like, what's she like? Oh, she's really nice. (laughs) I like the score. I like the way it was shot. I think if there's, uh, I don't think that the screenplay is super interesting, but I think worse than that are, um, either, you know, not to lay blame all on the actors, you know, directors are responsible for the performances as well. Um, but I think that, I think the acting in it is like the one part that is the tell. Like otherwise it's all pretty professional and pretty pretty artistically professional, but the tell on it being like a DIY like super cheap movie is how amateurish the acting is. Yeah. It's either way 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 underplayed or way 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 overplayed, so Agreed. there's like no modulation in the acting, and it's really obvious these are like amateur actors who are doing the best they can to the capacity of their own abilities as actors. Yeah, but the problem is the whole movie rests on the heads of these yeah. two basically non-actors, it yeah. feels like. So they're, it, they're it, 90% of the running time. Yeah, it's tricky. I think I think a lot of it comes down to the the point of this movie being one of tone and trying to maintain sort of a... a dreadful like sinister tone i think the music and the aesthetics kind of 
they help it get there, but it just can't cross the finish line again because of the performances and because the story is, uh, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of meat to the story. And then there's not a lot of, uh, acting in support of that story. Uh, it's the, the, one of the directors actually did the score. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure I'll get a nasty letter about it. (laughs) Yeah. As you do. I don't know. They never write me. They just like, Oh, John Golson. Now I'll hit the guy who kind of said something nice about it. Um, I mean, it's, it's Cleopatra entertainment who along the way put out a lot of very, whoever runs this company clearly is more concerned with music than they are with film. And I've said this before, because often we're like, Hey man, great score. Oh man, great gets with some big musicians in your stuff appearing there or getting their songs. But the movies are usually a very a mixed bag is not cruel enough. Uh, yeah. Not good. Um, there have been a few exceptions, but Cleopatra is like, yeah, we're in this. I mean, like they they often have the soundtrack included on a separate disc of their stuff, which is not common unless it's like an all time classic, right? Yeah. Um, the more is, it relies on its actors, the more it falls apart. Yeah. Too. Agreed. And, and that's a problem is the whole movie is, and it should be an actor's movie. You should have spent your budget getting two young actors who are really good at what they do. And this actually would have been not bad, but as it is, it's kind of tedious because neither one of them can pull off the material. Yeah. Uh, there are four minutes of behind the scenes bloopers. Um, there's two minutes, uh, with, uh, interview with Nick P- Pizanakis, uh, the, the co-director. It talks about the making of a mini comic they made to coincide with the release of the film. Uh, and there's a photo gallery. Yeah. This is, um, it's not a must see is all I'm saying, but we're going to go on to a film that feels like the precursor of every single women in prison movie. Like it's like nobody had figured out the formula yet. And this has certainly not gotten it down a hundred percent, but 1969's the house that screamed, also known as The Finishing School. It's a Spanish horror film written by a, a director that's Narciso Ibanez Cerador, who apparently was really so highly thought of because they ran a, a four-season sort of Twilight Zone type show that was very highly thought of in Spain. But that's really their main credit is that. But this is basically a women in prison film just with almost all the violence and, and nudity cut out of it. Which and also set in a girls' boarding school school with a sort of like arch gothic feel. Yeah, there, and there's a lot of boarding school horror too that I felt like this was like a progenitor to. Um, you know, stuff like The Woods to some degree, like Suspiria. Mm. Um, not not a you know not a massive influence, but it's hard when a movie. It's hard when the cliches are new because it makes it difficult to you're so you're so numb to them mm-hmm. that it makes it difficult for things that are helping to establish those things as cliches um it it's difficult for those things to work like they would have in the time it's not that the film is i don't want to say it's quote unquote dated i mean it is I mean, obviously an older movie yeah and but, it's also set in the 19th century yeah. <laughs> but it's just a case of like everything that you've seen up until the end, which is like, it has a pretty dark and macabre ending, um, mm-hmm. like kind of surprisingly so. Yeah. It, for a film that keeps cutting away, yeah. it just constantly, this film is constantly cuts away from anything, uh, lascivious or, you know, horror. And then the end actually finally shows you a thing and you're like, okay, that's 
pretty gross. That's yeah. pretty nasty, and both in concept and in look. Yeah. <laughs> um, and up until then, it's a lot of the same kind of like evil headmistress and infighting with the other girls at the school. Yeah. And there's a lot of like, there's a lot of that stuff that feels very, very, very cliche. Um, but then again, I, by the time it came around to the end, I think I, I did, I did the thing at end worked. Um, it's just, you have to forgive it a lot of like those cliches not being cliches in the sixties. Yeah. So what we see is like, Oh, I've seen all this before. It, it would not have been the case at the time, not in the same way. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes those films hold up regardless because of any number of thing reasons. Uh, yeah. this one I thought was ended up being a little dull for most of its yeah. running time. It's just so all the cliches are so front forward and have been so over explored that you're like, okay, now here's what happens. And then that happens. Here's what I, that, that happens. Uh, it's not really till the last 10 minutes or so that things start to get super interesting. Now it's shot well and the mm-hmm. location is amazing. You know, um, there's certainly Argento always listed it as an inspiration for Suspiria. You mentioned oh, okay. Suspiria earlier. It was actually thought of as a, you know, like influenced by that. Uh, but Suspiria is like, I wouldn't say if you love Suspiria, you should see the house that screamed because not really. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's fine. Like, I'm glad I saw it because it feels like it's a little like, middle missing piece a little missing link in film history here that i was unaware of but i'm never going to rewatch it i mean arrow put it out they put out a lot of stuff that is just this sometimes it's like hey this is a scholarly genre release you're like oh i wonder where we could see that film i've heard about that apparently was where stuff came from well that's the house that screamed yeah uh there are some bonus features here there's Two different versions of this. The, the, the extended version is the one under the title, The Finishing School, which is a minute, uh, hour 45. The theatrical version is an hour 34. Uh, there's a commentary. There's multiple interviews, uh, about the film. Uh, there's various excerpts from the Spanish version, from the standard definition VHS and DVD versions that are not inv- available on either one of these other ones. And of course, a trailer gallery and a booklet and a really nice, you know, really nice presentation. As Arrow always does. All right. So then we have a film that played Fantastic Fest last year. I did not get to see it, but people were talking about it very fondly. So when they offered it on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, I was like, you know what? I'm sorry, Music Box Films. I was like, okay, let's see Leonore Will Never Die. From a director you have never heard of because it's her first film, I believe. um, Martika Ramirez Escobar. Yes, her first film. And starring an actress you've never heard of, Sheila Francisco. Uh, It is a weird meta homage to Filipino action films of the 70s and 80s. And I know, hold up. None of you have probably watched a bunch of Filipino action films in the 70s and 80s. I don't think I've seen any. I don't even think I've had the opportunity to see any. But apparently... They were big there. Like, it was like people would like, the actors were like, you know, these actors you Americans have never heard of were treated like Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger there. People worshipped them. People would go around reciting lines from these movies. It was like a big deal. But this is, although this is kind of an action film, it's also not really. It's a weird meta imagining about creativity and and film in and of itself 
Um, it's obviously very s- small budgeted. Uh, and you can tell there are things they wanted to do they couldn't quite do, <laughs> you know. But the idea of this woman who was previously uh, Leonor, who was once a big writer for the Filipino film industry, uh, now she's sort of like fallen back. She's living with her son. She's having trouble paying the bills. But she sees an advertisement looking for screenplays. She begins working with an old script to hers that she never finished uh, about a brother who was... Uh, forced to avenge his brother's murder at the, at the hands of thugs. Um, and a television hitting her on their head knocks her out and she goes into a coma. And then the movie goes into this sort of like meta reality where half of it is she's inside the screenplay and just sort of like basically working out what's going to happen, but also interfering with it as a person in it. And the other half is re- real in quotes life, but cause it's also got a lot of magical realism shit going on. Yeah. Uh, it's a weird little film that I'm glad I got to see. I kind of wish I had seen this with the audience at Fantastic Fest. It's, it's not like you're going to, people are going to go, Oh, this is a movie you're going to keep coming back to again and again, but it definitely is like, wow, what a strong shot across the bar, bar the bow for a first time director. Yeah. It's got the same plot as, uh, the John Candy movie Delirious. <laughs> Where a writer is bonked on the head and wakes up in their in the thing that they write. Oh, I've never seen that. <laughs> yeah, I was and I've like, heard that's not very good. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is delirious. <laughs> it's it's the same as delirious, but um, better. I'm presuming. You know, like uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Wow, I um, didn't think this would be putting you on the spot. <laughs> I thought this was okay. I thought it didn't. Um, it was high concept. And I thought the attention to the aesthetics of the uh, action movie world were uh, pretty spot on and kind of cute. So it gives the movie like a a little bit of like it feels right, it feels accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it kind of like isn't really funny. Mm. Like there's not a lot of like comedy in it outside of the concept of. Oh, she's she's trapped in her own. I mean, writing. I would say it's absurdism. It's not necessarily yeah. funny. Funny. And, and then I also didn't find the characters interesting enough to sustain outside of it being not really like funny for a comedy. Okay, uh, so not I, a fan, John. Gilson. I thought it was okay. Like with little bunny ear quotation marks around. <laughs> okay, I thought it was okay when it comes to oh, it's a nice shot across the bow from a new director. I don't disagree with that. I think that it's like creatively, aesthetically, like all that kind of stuff. I've said aesthetically like a thousand times this episode. (laughs) I think creatively, the look and feel of the movie, um, all that stuff, even the high concept idea, I think is all, all that stuff's working. Um, I just don't know that it gets the juice out of its premise that the premise promises. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with you. I just don't. I think I'm more struck by its charm than you are. I, I found it very charming. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's very amateurish. It's very low budgeted. Um, the lead actress, I think is terrific. She's good. Yeah. yeah she's good. Um, she gives a very strong performance, which this wouldn't work at all without that. Everything is great except for it's, except for my personal level of engagement with it. Right. And it's kind of like at some point about halfway through, I got a little antsy because it was like, <laughs> Okay, I get what's going on. Like, I understand this premise. Yeah. And there's not really a raising of the stakes. There's just sort of like, 
now it's just going to carry out until the end. And at some point I did start to disengage after the sort of initial setup because it was like, where's the, <laughs> where's the rest? Okay. Like, no, so that's... I don't, so I don't disagree. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we, either one of us are really disagreeing. It's just whether or not we enjoyed yeah. what degree. Yeah. We enjoyed and I think it. May, it may come down to a personal thing where it's like, at some point I just, I just wasn't clicking with me. Uh, there is a feature commentary by the director. I did watch the 23 minute sit down with same director or a film that built itself, which is really cute. Um, and also how the ending, apparently like the, the last 20 minutes or so were not originally really part of the film. Yeah. Uh, and after pre-screening it, they were like, yeah, this needs some more. This not, this is not finished. And she had to kind of come up with in a very short period of time, the ending. Hmm. Uh, so it's, she's like, I wish I had had more time to work on that. I'm not as proud of that as I am of the rest of it, but I wouldn't have noticed per se that being different there's a creature creature feature making a video journal for 13 and a, half, uh, and a half minutes or so uh there's a short by the director pusong bato uh and then photo gallery behind the scenes gallery yada 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 uh yeah i kind of thought you would like this one more than that i was kind of i was surprised i was looking forward to giving this one to you it seemed like it was up your alley but the one i had no idea how you were going to react to is a much better fi- known film uh David Lynch's last movie, isn't that weird to say in 2006 was the last time David Lynch made a film? Well, I don't know if you saw, but Twin Peaks, the TV show, was on everybody's I, that best was movies just, list. That was just weird, man. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I love it. I love it. But come on. What are y'all doing? Stop yeah. it. <laughs> it was made for TV. Yeah. It was not made for movie theaters. No. Uh, but Inland Empire looks like it was made for TV. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, so a huge David Lynch fan... Just love it. I main reason I ask this because I'm a completist more than anything. And also, I've only ever seen it the once. I saw it the, the, the old, uh, village Alamo theater when it first came out all by myself. And there's like two other people in the theater when I saw it. Um, you know, it's a David Lynch film. I'm going to go see it in the theater. And I had had to go get coffee halfway through because I was like, I can't stay awake during this thing. Yeah. And also, it just looks awful. Because he shot the entire thing on really cheap for that time digital video, and then with this one, I heard with this restoration, it, they used AI to restore it, and it has like a weird liquidy kind of like the 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 little digital things that would make something look like video, yeah, kind of are constantly in motion. It's sort of got like this wormy image. I agree. Yeah, yeah. and it's like probably still better looking than it would would have been otherwise. Yeah, but. I don't understand the whole the, the Lynch premise of like, yeah, let's just shoot on cheap shit because I like the way it looks. Like, I he has this whole like living inside a dream thing, whatever. But it feels like there was no consideration for. It. But you do want people fifty years from now to watch this film, right? <laughs> you know, and I don't know. Lynch seems like in some ways very much a man of the moment. You know, whatever's going on in his head in that second. I don't know. Which I would, is, well, that's how this movie was created. Yeah. So they were giving, they were writing day of and being like, this is what we're shooting today, which is also why they use video. And I'll say like, like Mulholland Drive is my favorite Lynch film. I think it's a unassailable masterpiece. It too suffers from shooting on digital video through a lot of it, which drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. Every time I rewatch it, I'm like, how much better would this have been if it had been shot on 35 millimeter? Uh, It's just, it's frustrating, but 
this one, that one is very confusing and abstract, like a lot of his films can be to some level. And it's certainly more abstract than, say, Wild at Heart or Blue Velvet or something like that, or even Lost Highway, which are all in their own way, very weird and at points confusing. Mulholland Drive is the one that if you, you can't go take a bathroom break, you have to watch the whole thing to even get the faintest idea of what's going on. Inland Empire is basically that as well, except it's three fucking hours long and even more impenetrable. Uh, and at points very dull. Uh, I admire a lot of things about the film along the way. I'm glad I got a chance to rewatch this movie, which is again dealing with the whole Hollywood starlet, dealing with yeah. things in Hollywood, yeah. which like half of his films are about. Um, but apparently it's dealing with other stuff as well. I don't, you know, it's a interesting, really interesting experimental film with some really good stuff in it, but long stretches of like, what the fuck are you doing? And that frustration of like, why does this have to look this shitty? Yeah, it's a movie about a movie. It's a uh, Laura Dern's like an actress. The movie starts to become a thing where it's like, oh, the, the, you can't tell if it's if certain scenes are the movie that she's making or if certain scenes are her actual life. Well, I mean, it's kind of like she becomes yeah. the character in yeah. the films. That- and then that stuff starts to devolve into, like, this conversation about um, how when you're an actor and you're out there and you're getting paid to perform how close is that to being an actual whore yeah because there's a whole Um, thing with her becoming a prostitute yeah like but in an alternate reality yeah uh and i don't think that um like that's fine lynch is an artist and that this is not going to be evaluated in the same way that i would necessarily evaluate say guardians of the galaxy 3 sure but there's also this thing of like when you talk about art like, what do you know and what rings true through your art? And a lot of this stuff about actresses and whoredom does not ring true to me in the way that it did in, say, like, a movie we reviewed on here. Oh, what's it called? Nina Wu? Was that the name of the movie? Uh, yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, Jesus. it's been a long time. But it didn't ring true in that same way where both of them are kind of artistic. They get, I mean, Nina Wu gets a little experimental. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something but it's not abstract right it's not abstract but the other thing too is that lynch hasn't lived that and so it's difficult to be like i'm going to explore this for three hours when it feels like a vague notion and not like a concept that he's intimately aware of like it's sort of just like oh i guess being an actress is kind of like being a whore now for three hours here's my dissertation on that (laughs) and it's like it feels like a fleeting notion turned into homework. And it's like, I, it's. And a lot of it is just that. I think that the fact that he didn't, it didn't feel like he spent much more time beyond, like he developed the concepts. He didn't develop the execution. He just made it up as he went along. Uh, like, but that, like you said, the actors being given pages day of on script and them just changing and, you know, okay, but I'm not sure, uh, Film like this should be improv, yeah. which is essentially as almost what it seems like, you know. Yeah, and and let me let me just back up for a second for the listeners that when I because I, I keep using the word whore and I realize it's very un PC. If I was referring to somebody who has agency in their sex work, I'm going to call them a sex worker. Right. I'm talking about whore as in the movie cliche. 
Right. I'm talking about like sure the 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 these are the street, cinematic cliches are about streetwalkers. Yeah, the cinematic cliche of the of the movie Streetwalker. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about when I say that. I'm not talking about like your your friend with an OnlyFans, right? Which, who I would refer to as a sex worker. Sure, I would not use the W word. Yes, <laughs> I just that's wanna, good to qu- I, it's good to clarify. I just want to clarify that I'm strictly strictly speaking in movie cliches. Yes, um, which is which is kind of where Lynch is living with this. Which is also one of those things where it's like, do you know what you're talking about? Like, I don't know that you know what you're talking about, but you're but you're gonna like because you're David Lynch. I get that it's gonna be like artistic and off-putting and and dark and nightmarish but at the same time i'm like yeah you can conjure all of those tones <laughs> but i don't know that they're in the service of something that feels true to me i know i felt less like it was lynch saying our actresses and and whores the same thing so much as that he was wanting the character to worry about that yeah well yeah 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 uh, but i didn't feel like the film's aim was to equate those things to the watcher um, I thought it was more like her journey. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't know. Um, there's just so many things to take into account here that happen or do they? Like, uh, there's all, like, the director is Jeremy Irons of the film within the film. Justin Thoreau plays the, the lead actors working, f- uh, with her who Lard, uh, Lardern's husband is very worried that she's gonna, cheat on him with him and apparently it's sort of predestined that she is to some degree yeah um that she worries about it and goes and it's like wait why am i worrying about it this would never happen i love my husband even though her husband is a real shit anybody immediately goes oh you're working with a man you're gonna cheat on me i know it and i'll kill you both maybe you should get out of that relationship i'm just saying yeah maybe that's the bad guy and you should cheat but you've also got julia ormond diane ladd Grace Zabriskie, uh, Mary Steenburgen, I believe this is her only time working with Lynch. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe so. Um, a very small role, and I believe super early in his career for Terry Crews, playing a, a, a homeless guy. Yeah. Which was like, wait, is that Terry Crews? Uh, William H. Macy, lots of other various familiar people, like, in, uh, including like, there's a weird interstitial thing with that's like a sitcom, but with a bunch of like sort of puppet rabbits, like stop motion rabbits. And like some of them are va- like one of them is voiced by Naomi Watts, uh, David Lynch, like uh, Natasha Kinski. I don't know. This is a, this is only for, Serious Lynchians. I would never subject someone who had not had no background in Lynch at all to this film. Yeah. You know, like I was poor Wright who doesn't like David Lynch films. Like is like, I just don't like his stuff, even though he's only seen like two or three. Yeah. You guys see like Elephant Man or Straight Story and then then see some versatility. Well, you know, I mean, I would always, I always try and start people off with Wild at Heart because it's so much fun. It's like weird, but it's fun as hell. It's like got a campiness to it. Mm. And it's like a, a film that anybody, even if you're not a Lynch film could go like, Oh, I kind of enjoying the things that he's doing that are Lynchian, but partially because everything is so fun. Um, this is not fun. This is, no. as you said, more like homework, <laughs> but I do feel like I owe some, I'm such a Lynch addict that I'm like, I'll probably rewatch this two or three more times before I die. Just because I'm like, I feel like I need to understand it. Yeah. That's how he gets you. 
I'm good. <laughs> I know. I'm I, good. I'm jealous of you being good. <laughs> I wish I was good. Uh, this is Criterion, though, which is one of the reasons. If we'd been some smaller company, I probably would have been like, eh. But uh, I have Criterions of most of the rest, although they still haven't put out Wild at Heart. So I'm like, what the fuck? That's hmm. still, I would very much like to have a Criterion 4K of, of Wild at Heart. Probably music issues with that one, right? Yeah, I would be. imagine there's a bunch. Of, isn't there a bunch of Elvis in that? Yeah. Yeah. Amongst other things. Yeah. Uh, but the the... This does come with bonus features and a charming 32-minute conversation that was just filmed with Laura Dern and Kyle McLaughlin, who've, of course, worked together multiple times over the years, but most notably in Blue Velvet, which was her, one of her earliest films, and as well as uh, one of his, although I, he had already done Dune for mm. Lynch at that point. And it's just sort of them talking about working with Lynch over the years and their feelings about him as a person. And it's just delightful. It's worth owning this just for, to watch that because they are obviously still very close friends who stay in, in touch. They both obviously are very close friends with Lynch who stay in touch. And so having had many conversations over the years with people who've worked with Lynch, you would think he's the last guy in the world who would be this huggy, like really affectionate, like very, very like hands on, but no, I want to work with you sort of way director. You'd think he'd be cold and distant. No, he's the uh, the first thing. He's like this really deeply likable human being who's just like, I want to work with you. I want to help you. Let's do this together. This is a collaborative project who everybody loves who works with. What was the doc from maybe five years ago about Lynch and yeah. painting? Yeah, yeah, I have that. I'm you just get a, you get a, I can't remember the name of it. You get a really good sense of who he is from that documentary. It's about him. Him and his little art projects, and he talks about his life. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a chance on um, when we were doing, when Twin Peaks Season 3 were coming out, we were doing an episode-by-episode episode show of reviews of it, and we got a chance to do an interview with the main hobo from it. I don't know if you watched it or not, uh -uh. but the guy who was playing, the, like, there were all these sort of, like, dark hobos, and he was, like, the, the most, the primary one who you saw a lot, uh, Christian Calloway. Uh, who turned out to be just a just charming guy, but his whole career is pretty much playing hobos or evil guys because he's like got really long, scraggly gray hair and like he's he's like yeah. in his sixties and he's like he just he fits the the stereotype, but he's a really good actor and he's just this delightful guy uh, who's like man Lynch would come over and he would literally go like he wanted to work with you, show you what to do, he would like put his hands around you and stand from behind and hold your hands and go like, you know, more like this. And, and like, and he would buy everybody fucking like, he would bring everyone coffee or whatever in the morning. Like he was just like a really good guy. Yeah. Like, so he said the easiest collaboration he ever had was working with him, which is deeply surprising. <laughs> People like Lynch, you expect them to be super difficult. And apparently he's not, he's just a sweetheart. Uh, this also comes with uh, a film Lynch one, from 2007, uh, which is by David Lynch, The Art Life, the film you were talking about earlier, which is made over the course of two years during the filming of Inland Empire, which is 76 minutes long. There's Lynch 2 uh, by the same people, which is just exactly what it sounds like. It's part two of that. More things that happened. Uh, several extended and cut scenes from Inland Empire. I got to be honest. It, I, I was like, oh, well, that could be interesting. And then the running time is 75 minutes. I'm like, I'm not watching that. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. I cannot do that to myself. Uh, Room to Dream, a short audio recording with David Lynch reading from uh, his uh, book he co-authored with Christine McKenna of that name. Uh, a trailer, a leaf illustrated leaflet. Yeah, I mean, 
you know whether or not this is for you. Criterion puts it together one hell of a package with it, but you better already be a Lynch fanatic. I mean, how do you feel? How many Lynch films have you seen? Have you seen them all? Have you seen the bulk of them? I've seen the bulk of them. I haven't seen... I haven't watched Twin Peaks, which is probably a huge blind spot. It is. And I haven't seen Lost Highway. And short of that, I think I've seen everything else. So There was something that got released theatrically that was intended as a TV pilot. And I can't remember what that was. I don't know what you're talking about. Mulholland Drive. That was the one that was originally going to be a TV pilot. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Okay. Uh, Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, uh, I love it. I do recommend Twin Peaks. I do recommend it very highly because it's actually weirdly light and breezy <laughs> through the first season. The second season gets a little too heavy on the light and breezy because Peak, uh, Lynch isn't there for a lot of it. His compatriot Mark Frost takes over, but so it's not as good as the first season, but it has moments of it and it ends phenomenally. And then the third season is just a you know, it's pure Lynch and it's a fucking masterpiece in my opinion. It's just, yeah. this is incredible. Like not what you were asking for or expected at all from a third season of Twin Peaks. And yet it completely works and delivers everything it should hmm. really, really good. And I actually, in a weird sort of way, recommend watching that before Lost Highway. Cause I find that I liked Lost Highway upon rewatching recently their criterion release of that much more than I ever did before after watching Twin Peaks season three. Cause it always to me kind of felt like it was in the same universe as that. Yeah. You know, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive are the two films that feel like they're extension pieces from Twin Peaks. I'm kind of like split on his stuff. I like about half of it and I don't like about half of it <laughs> of what I've seen. I really like Elephant Man. I really yeah. like, um, Blue Velvet a lot. Yeah. I like Mulholland Drive. I did not actually like Wild at Heart. Oh, um, I didn't, killing me. I didn't like you. this. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, this one is a pass. You're like, yeah. all right, nobody expects you to like this. <laughs> a lot of Lynch fans like me, like Lynch super fans, are even, we're even like, I mean... And hell, I'm a Dune apologist. I mean, we reviewed Dune yeah. on here a few months ago, and like, I'm a Dune apologist, so... Yeah, fair enough. Well, I just watched one of the first Francois Truffaut films I'd seen since film school recently on a podcast with Wright, The Bride That Wore Black, which uh, people have always said was definitely his most Hitchcockian type film, which is weird because he's not a guy who did a lot of genre-y type stuff. But we both really enjoyed it. We're like, wow, this is a a neat little twisty film that, like, honestly, there's twists in it even in this day and age. You're like, wow, I did not see that coming. Um, he himself really disliked it, apparently. Talked a lot of shit about it. But it's one of those films, like, when it came out, it was not not thought highly of, but been reevaluated over the years as being, wow, this is great. Yeah. The story of Adele H. from 1975 has always been thought of as one of his good films. I was not as crazy about it, <laughs> to be honest. I do really, really like lead actress Isabel Adjani. She is one of those actresses who there's just something about her type actresses. You know, that je ne sais quoi, which seems appropriate. Uh, uh, where you're like, wow, you're mesmerizing with these huge saucer-shaped eyes. And you're just like, there's, you're just, you can't take your eyes off her. Uh, I think you said recently you watched Possession. 
Is yeah, the, I did. She was the star of that. Yes. As well. Yeah. <laughs> she seems to always give 110%. She does, even if the films around her aren't always as good as she is. Like that them. 80s movie where she's an angel. What? What movie is that? that? There's like that 80s like rom-com from the mid-80s where she plays an angel that lands on Earth and this teenage boy finds her. It's kind of like weird, like a religious weird science, but it's not like a religious movie. I don't want to oversell it. Is it called Date with an Angel? I don't know. Yeah, dude. it's like an eighties, an eighties film. So because she she's a, French, a they're angel. like, well, angels would probably yeah. be French, yeah. right? Is that is that the take? I guess so. I mean, she's been in stuff that I really. I'm surprised did you haven't like. seen that. It's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I miss it. She was in Subway. Did you ever see that? The Luc Besson, mm-hmm. one of his first no. films. Really stylish, cool movie. She was in Ishtar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the 1996 remake of Diabolique, which is also not very good. Uh, I'm looking for films she's been in that I really liked. And to be fair, I haven't seen most. She's a lot of French movies, as you might imagine. But, um, you know, oh, I'm wrong. It's Emmanuel Biart. It's uh, not, okay. it's not her. Well, oh, that wrong. whole thing and then nothing. Yeah. Sorry. It was <laughs> the other, the other beautiful French lady from the eighties. <laughs> uh, so also starring Bruce Robinson, who directed With Nail and I. Remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. British, the ultimate British cult film that I'm not sure that Americans, including me, understand why the British like it as much as they I've do. seen it and I can't remember anything about yeah, it. It's I saw it once. I went, I, I remember getting so excited to see it and then going, this is the film you guys are so crazy about. Come on, guys. Have you seen Repo Man? If we're talking cult films here. Let's just do that. Anyway, sorry. This film, uh, story of Adele H. It's 1863. American Civil War is going on. Britain and France haven't entered the conflict yet. Uh, British troops have been stationed in Halifax in Nova Scotia, checking very carefully European passengers coming off foreign ships. Uh, Adele, hardly, sorry, what? No, I'm, I, I just made a sound. Oh, and sorry. That's all. all right. Adele, uh, is the second daughter of famous writer Victor Hugo. Okay. You know, I mean, very obviously legendary. You wrote Walt author. Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> She gets through, goes into Halifax under an assumed name. She finds accommodations at a boarding house. Uh, and she's asking everyone about this British officer, Lieutenant Albert Pinson, played by Bruce Robinson, who she's like, oh, I had a relationship with. But she keeps lying about it to people. Like, sometimes it's like her sister's fiance. Other times it's hers. It becomes clear very shortly that she is not well, like not psychologically well. Um, and that she's super obsessed with this guy. And then when she finally encounters him, he's like, what are you even doing here? Seriously? Like, really? What is wrong with you? Something is deeply wrong with her. She is a stalker, basically. And this is a true story, which makes it even more disturbing. Victor Hugo's daughter was schizophrenic and lost her mind obsessing over this British officer that she traveled not only to Halifax, but later to some islands just stalking this guy. Um, if this movie was made now, I suspect it would be made very, very differently than it is because she is treated with much more sympathy by the film than I felt for her. That is for sure. Because the film doesn't really address her on a being on a mental illness level until very, very late in the film. Whereas as a watcher, like early on, like, yeah, something's really wrong with this person. Um, it's just like, oh, she, it treats her like the wronged party in a thing. And you're like, well, she, that's not what happened though. I don't know. I, w- I had very mixed feelings about this. I mean, it's very well shot. Of, uh, it's, of, of course, um, lots of great locations, good performances. And yet 
I just had so much trouble drumming up any sympathy for the lead character at all that I'm like, oh my god. I don't know. I could. F- I I recognized. Um, I feel like I recognized the emotional elements from uh, my own life, both from his side and from her side. It's very junior high. Yeah. It's very like. Uh, the kind of thing that happens like when you're just getting into romantic love for the very first time in your life. So for me, that's like sixth grade into seventh grade into eighth grade. That's not adulthood. No. And like, she's by like the time I almost was an adult, 30. <laughs> I mean, I, I still had lessons to learn, but by the time I was an adult, this sort of like, um, raw nerve emotion based on, uh, like, <laughs> Who you slept with? I just, you know, I I recognized it. I recognized the like obsessive sort of like, what are they doing? What are they thinking about me? What are they doing right now? I also recognized his sort of. I think the movie kind of leaves it where it's he's kind of like the a very typical guy behavior of like, I'm going to not say no with any real closure in case that door ever needs to be open again, which is a very, like, a very, uh, it's a toxic male trait, probably. Mm -hmm. So there's things that I recognized in this, uh, and it probably experienced one way or the other. But again, no matter the trappings of, like, a foreign war and, like, it being in French, None of that made it feel any more mature than, like, something that people would have gone through when they were, like, 13. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's really what it boils down to is, like, you're watching adults in a sophisticated art house film act like junior high kids. Well, yeah. Yeah, most certainly. Um, I, I think it's just that there's no closure for that whatsoever. Now, yes, it is based on true story. She ended up being secreted away in, like, an asylum for the whole later half of her life, basically, because she was... Deeply disturbed, yeah. right? Um, if it wasn't for the fact she was her money, who knows what would have happened to her? She probably would have died in the islands. It's just, I mean, it's a tragedy, no question. But is it romantic? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Like, uh, in fact, it's anti-romantic is my take on it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, look how much, look how false ideas of love can be and and are in your own brain you know it's mm. like they don't there's never any shared feeling from this guy with her it it feels like you could redo this and do this just about that like how the human brain is so prone to failures when it comes to like the idea of love being bigger than anything and that was not the intent when they made the film clearly yeah. I find it disturbing that the intent is to feel sorry for her, actually. If she would have had a trapper keeper, she would have written her first name and his last name on it over and over and over. Over and over and over again, yep. Uh, There's an audio commentary by film historians Julie Kurgo and Nick Redman uh, that is here. Uh, The only extra ones are trailers for the film and other titles by Kino Lorber, who put this out. I mean, I know there's somebody out there who's going to love this movie. He's going to be like, motherfucker, that's a classic, because most people consider it to be a classic. It wasn't for me. I don't know what to tell you. Next up, we're going to Hong Kong. Boy, has it been this whole show before we've gotten a a movie from Hong Kong? Uh, 1986's Millionaire's Express. I want you to be grateful that you got this one instead of the other 1980s Hong Kong film that Wright had to watch. Uh, I think it was called Heart of Tiger or Lion or something, where... Jackie Chan has a uh, mentally disabled brother played by Samuel Hung, who also directed the movie. That's I kept called it fighting on the bus with my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 
not uh, okay. <laughs> this one is Sammo Hung directing and writing. Uh, that's also got his longtime uh, co-worker and friend, Yuen Biao. Uh, got Rosamund Kwan in here, Huang Jan Lee, a lot of big names, a lot of other people as well. That sort of has a feel of one of those old Hollywood, like, 60s films, like, uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world yeah. where it just wants to shove everything in it. So I was saying that, and then the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, no, nah, it's more like the cannibal run <laughs> in a way. It's got all these crazy characters. It's got a lot of sort of sex undertones to it going on. Um, there's lots and lots of action. Uh, it's got a just goofy, ridiculous plot. Um, I don't know. It, this would have been better with Burt Reynolds. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, it's never too... Oh, wait. No, it is too yeah, late. Yeah, it is too late. Um, yeah. You know, I felt like I was looking at, like, direct ancestor to the good, the bad, and the weird while I watched this. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is... Like, a code has been cracked. Like, I'm literally sitting here viewing the DNA of what became the good, the bad, and the weird. I can totally see that. Yeah. Um, same kind of tone. Same sort of, like, uh, Western kind of feel to it. Yeah as well it's modern wild west yeah uh yeah. yeah this was fun it was madcap and zany and uh it gets a little rambling like it's yeah. not it's not extremely tight but i think that you know you mentioned cannonball run those get a real little rambly as well yeah um it's a lot of set pieces yeah <laughs> yeah you know like uh, here's the joke for this set piece we're gonna play it out there's gonna be a little bit of action there's gonna be some pratfalls and then we'll move on to the next sequence that's kind of like that it feels a little bit like one of those movies that i think should have a better foothold in the minds of american genre fans mm -hmm. it feels like something i would have heard mentioned a lot before um, yeah. and the fact that it's not really kind of surprised me. So maybe it hasn't been readily available. Maybe that's the deal with it. Is it, is that there haven't, yeah, there no, there been like good releases. No, of it? most certainly not. Um, and I mean, part of that is I think dragon's dynasty was the company that was largely the only people who were releasing American versions yeah. of Hong Kong films for a long time from this period. And I don't remember ever seeing a release of that from them. I mean, maybe there was at some point, but I don't think this is considered to be one of the major films of this era. Uh, it certainly has got like this huge all-star cast. If you like Hong Kong films, yeah. not necessarily people, you know, from uh, like who made the translation to America. I mean, here it's just Sammo Hung pretty much. Oh, and uh, isn't this is the one with Cynthia Rothrock, right? Am I wrong? I, yes, no, Cynthia Rothrock, yeah. who was an American action star who really got her start because no one would cast her in American films because they're like, we don't really need a female martial artist badass working in Hong Kong films. And this was one of her first ones. And she went on to be a major star in Hong Kong and then came back and had a brief period of like headline. I know her name from like direct to video. Yeah. She's pretty great. The early nineties. Yeah. There's bonus stuff on here, here interviewing her, talking about her career and how important this film was as a stepping stone for her, for her. Um, uh, interesting, certainly interesting as hell person and a, a one-off. There is no other person. There is no other white American female action star who came and did Hong Kong movies at this period. <laughs> I, we rarely analyze a scene, but I, I do want to mention how this thing opens. It opens with, you see Sammo Hung and there's all these kind of like corpses laying out on a battlefield. Russian corpses. Yeah. yeah. 
and he decides he's going to like, oh, what you know, what a bounty he's found. He's going to check their pockets and see if there's anything uh, in their pockets worth owning or selling. So he digs through all their pockets, and then as he completes the task of digging through all their pockets, uh, spoiler, he discovers it was a, a training exercise for the military, and they were <laughs> supposed to play dead, so they all rise up. Which is like, what? And he's just like <laughs> standing there with their crap. And, and it did a really good job of like setting a tonal expectation and also like portraying him as kind of a scoundrel who's not like a bad person but he's opportunistic right. uh it does a really it does a really really although good he job. ends up murdering all of them shortly after that <laughs> well, <laughs> even though they they're not in be... the wrong technically well, yeah but i i still think it's like it lets you know it had been a while since i'd seen a movie who who immediately let you know right up front what you were about to get into like kind of kind of immediately was like Oh, that's really interesting and funny. Like it opened yeah. with such a strong, funny gag yeah. that that also conveyed the setting of the film, the time of the film, and the, and the guy the who's going to be chasing him. Yeah, exactly. Who uh, you're like? I'm still by the end. I was like, does anyone know who this guy even is? <laughs> He's like, it's me, independent police type guy, but not really. Yeah. Who's just chasing him? Yeah. <laughs> I liked I I I probably honestly liked the very beginning more than more than anything else single thing else in it. Um but yeah, I feel like I feel like I wanted to give that a special call out. Well, they you know, he goes there's like time passes and it's like he goes he wants decides he's going to go back to his hometown and it looks like like the local police force there are really corrupt and they set like a fire to their own advantage and yada yada upshot is Sam Hung shows up with a bunch of prostitutes who the film is very sympathetic towards, uh, it, which is kind of weird for Chinese films and goes, See, I would at this call period, them sex workers. Yes. Uh, and like, he's like, I'm going to set up a bordello slash really nice hotel slash casino slash whatever in this tiny little town I grew up in because it'll be good for the town. And at first there's a point where like everyone's like, no, no hookers in our town. And then like, there's an impassioned speech and then they're like, yes, hookers in our town. Which by the way, I read, cause I was trying to figure out which cut to watch. Cause this version has two cuts and apparently mm-hmm. some of the pro sex work stuff is what's cut. Yeah. So not any major action sequences or anything like right. that. It's it the, turns around into yeah. like, wait, maybe there's nothing wrong with sex work, which is weirdly awake i'm gonna use that instead of the other word for this period of time uh where ever ultimately the town is kind of all on the same side but weirdly sam hung even he's still a con man and a criminal but he genuinely is like i want to save my hometown i want it yeah. to be better and everyone to be happy and yada yada and he decides his plan is is this very rich train coming through town that he wants to blow up the tracks not to hurt anyone on it just so they're forced to stop and they'll come into the town into his new hotel bordello spend a bunch of money and all that'll go into the local economy they're like so it's not like i want to be rich it's like i want everybody to be happy i want my the the women who work under me to be happy i want everyone to be happy uh but the guy is still chasing him uh, there's a whole thing with a bunch of prisoners on the run and people trying to steal money from the rich people on the thing. They're like, there's all these different groups who have their yeah. own agendas. So it's a lot going on at once. And maybe one thing too many, I would argue. Like it gets a little convoluted at points, but I yeah. think in the end, this is a, a delightfully goofy little one-off movie. You know, mm-hmm. I'm really glad I got a chance to see it. I've always read about it because I read shit like history of Hong Kong films. I'm one of those guys, but 
I, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I've been looking forward to this one. And it, it, I think more than not, it delivered. I mean, it's no one's going to go. This is one of the all time classics of action comedy from from Hong Kong from this period. But yeah, well, we're seeing. Yeah. Uh, and this is from Arrow. And I'm so glad they're all that all the big companies now are kind of moving past Shaw Brothers. We've kind of re-released all the good Shaw Brothers stuff now. So now they're moving into the golden age, which is the mid to mid eighties to mid nineties, which is my favorite period. Like, you know, the Sammo Hung, Jackie Chan, Jet Li, Donnie Yen, all the stuff that was starting to come out then love some of that stuff, but we still haven't gotten the big ones, right? Like Ronin films has released a few of them. Like they put out the legend of Fong Se-Yuk. They put out Tai Chi master, which you reviewed with me. They put out, fist of legend um nobody's releasing a lot of the stuff that everyone's like where's this um i'm very much about a mr vampire box set someone please put out a mr vampire box set because those are great and also sammo hung had a comedy series called encounters of the spooky kind which is very similar to mr vampire but set modern day uh yeah anyway arrow put this one out this is a single on its own movie well worth your time if you like this period of hong kong film i i thought overall this is it it was deeply enjoyable uh there is as you said two different cuts of this the theatrical cut is an hour 37 the extended cut is an hour 41 there are three different commentaries here uh two of which is commentary throughout the whole thing one of which is a select scene audio commentary with uh cynthia rothrock actually showing up for it and there's Three different interviews with Cynthia of Rock Rock, one of which uh, is recent from 2021. Uh, two different interviews with Sammo Hung, Yuen Biao. I always feel bad for him because they always said like the trio was Sammo Hung, Jackie Chan, Yuen Biao. Biao's the one who's like, nobody knows his name, right? Yep. He didn't make the transfer <laughs> to America. Nobody knows him, right? Even though he's equally as talented as both those two other guys are. But yeah, he is, he is really funny and cool and, and talented as fuck, but not as maybe like Samuel Hung had the whole, Hey, I'm a fat guy who moves really fast. And yeah. that was his attraction. Plus he was very charismatic. Jackie Chan, maybe not conventionally good looking, but he definitely was the guy who had the comedy down pat, the Pratt Falls. He reinvented like martial arts films, like almost single handedly. Biao was like just incredibly talented, but not very good looking, I guess, by at least by standards, uh, Chinese standards. So he just never made the, the, the big transfer. But yeah, no question of legend in this period. Uh, on the cutting edge with Yukari Oshima, archival interview from 2007, alternate English credit, credits, trailer galleries. Uh, there's also an English export cut, which is an hour and 32 and a hybrid cut. I love it when Arrow does that. Here's the best of both worlds. We've actually edited them together, which is an hour and 48 minutes. Yeah. Um, if you like Hong Kong movies, you've never seen Millionaire's Express. I recommend it. I cannot personally recommend our next one. I know it holds a special place in John Golson's heart. It's not for me. I got an uh, episode and a half into The Adventures of Batman before I was like, I can't do it, man. I just can't do it. You didn't watch every single episode? This is so bad. It's just fucking terrible. It's like, I was never the world's <laughs> biggest filmation guy anyway. Uh-huh. But, I mean, they've done some stuff. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I feel a little warm towards this. This was originally... The 12 minute Batman segments from a show that they had together called the Batman Superman Hour, uh, which sometimes would even have a third cartoon that would throw in there to fill up the space from filmation. 
but uh they eventually split it off and just re-released it on its own as just the adventures of batman which i guess it was the most more popular part partially because this followed the 60s batman adam west uh burt ward tv show which i love to pieces i think it's fantastic got the campiness just perfect people don't seem to get that it was always considered to be making fun of it like i've seen people like it's so dumb i'm like you do get this isn't the dark knight right this is like people already knew who batman was like batman had been around in the old serials days like he'd been around forever he was already iconic this was like making fun of the whole thing it's a satire of it and i think a kind of brilliant one this animation was trying to capture that same spirit only without any of the same voice actors and and uh, it's uh, wait, not funny. It, it's Adam West and Burt Ward. No, it is not. It, uh, is Casey Kasem no, is, is playing? No, it's yeah. Ad- dude. I'm telling you, it's Adam West and Burt Ward. I, I'm I'm certain you're wrong. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I am absolutely certain you're wrong. Uh, it's because Casey Kasem plays Robin, and I can't remember who plays uh Batman. But uh, yeah, Olin Soul. Was the voice of Batman? That's the that's a different Batman show. Hold no. on, hold on, hold on. New Adventures of Batman is Adam Westenberg. This Ward. is just the Adventures of Batman. The, I'm telling you, I was watching it. I was like, wait a minute, that's Casey Kasem. Oh. Yeah, New Adventures of Batman is a different show altogether. That's the one with okay. Then I am super mixed up. Yeah. Did you rewatch this? You know what? Because you were like, I know it so well. I may have watched. Is Batmite in the ones that you had? I don't know. I only watched the first episode and a half, dude. Was Batmite in it? I don't know. <laughs> He's in every episode. No, he is not in every episode. He like of floats those. around like Orko from Master of the Universe. No, He's I, like Batman and Robin. Let me go with you to fight crime. And they're like, "You stay here." I'm Batmite. Pretty sure he wasn't. Okay. Uh, this is from 1968. Okay. Uh, and I think that may have even predated Batmite in the comics. Okay. I have watched what you're talking about too. It's not. And then that good. show gets a sequel that's New Adventures. Okay. Which and, and I've I would watched wa- a lot of New Adventures I would relatively watch recently. That with that original cast. I would watch well, that. And with that might. Still not. I, okay. I, it's it's still, still not good. It's still not good. Yeah. This is not good. This is like really, really, really not good. Yeah. And I think there's some people who are going to be like, but I love the whole camera. I love the filmation and the silly. Same- <laughs> no. It's bad. Uh, I, it makes me not want to be a Batman fan. (laughs) (laughs) Look, all right. So this is what I grew up on, right? So like (laughs) channel. So I, so new adventures of Batman and Robin was first for me because it was on Saturday mornings when I was a kid, Okay, like late seventies. And that was filmation, right? This is, yeah. But shortly after that, when I was grade school age, so toddler age, I'm watching new adventures of Batman and Robin. I have the Mego figures, like the dolls and the small little Star Wars size action figures. Yeah. I have the Batmobile. I'm all about it. 100% about it. Then grade school starts and I'm seeing the, I'm seeing that show, the one that we're talking about right now. Yeah. I'm seeing it in syndication on channel 26 out of Houston. And like you're getting Superman, you're getting Batman. Sometimes you're getting Superboy. Sometimes you might get the Atom. Um, like it, you know, Hawkman, maybe Green Lantern, maybe if you're lucky, but most of the time it's going to be either Superman or Superboy and Batman and Robin. And like, that's my, that's my, 
you know, you see these things and you like imprint on, I, I have a really strong uh, feeling that the comics era where you imprint on the characters is like the version of the character that you end up loving the most. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so if you were a nineties kid, and the first time you saw X-Men was the X-Men cartoon. That's the version of X-Men in your no, mind. I mean, yes. I mean, yeah. which is why I'm always like, I like the detective Batman because for me, it was those seventies Batman covers where it was like, they were so dark. What was the guy who was doing the art? Neil, of- Neil Adams yeah. probably. Yeah. Like that they were just hyper realistic looking, uh, like, like anatomy detailed yeah. type stuff. And they were always really dark. It was kind of the beginning of the Joker going from a goofy character to, wow, this guy's a fucking serial killer. Um, I, that was my Batman growing up. So I'm like, I want that Batman, uh, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I like the goofy Adam West stuff, but even as a kid, I was aware this was not Batman, Batman. Well, yeah. I wasn't. Okay. And so like, this was my Batman and I do, I have a lot of affection for it. I have a mm-hmm. lot of affection for it. Um, it's, it is, uh, you know, it's a choice. It's a, it's I'll, a I'll, chore. Let me, let me, let me, <laughs> it's, it's, cheap right like it's super cheap like it's you get the filmation like filmation brand stock animation where they would take and it doesn't matter what show you're watching it could be he-man it could be batman it could be star trek it could be freaking gilligan's planet they've got the (laughs) shot of the guy whose face takes up three quarters of the screen uh, and it's like his mouth is moving. Yeah. They've got the run across the screen from left to right, which yeah. is like the same animation. They've got this like rotoscoped guy who runs towards the camera that they use in like all of their shows. They just redraw and like not Captain to Kirk over the and same they sound cues yeah. over and over and the again. Sa- and they, and the voice actors are not voice actors. They're all people from filmation. Yeah. Like they don't hire out. It's just like, Lou Scheimer of Filmation <laughs> is going to do the voice of whoever the character is. Right. So they also don't have, like, that's why when you watch those shows, they, I mean, Star Trek is like the rare exception of one where it's like, oh, this has like the cast. Well, or, I mean, also weirdly had a lot of high end writers on. Yeah. Like there's like famous science fiction writers who are writing yeah. episodes of that who missed their shot to write actual <laughs> Star Trek episodes. Like, well, fuck it. I'll do the animated series. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this stuff is super of its, time i guess but man as a little kid like this is what i imprinted on this was the superhero <sighs> stuff and it's probably probably why to this day i can take a lot of flexibility in batman as a character but there's something about him as a superhero because my introduction to him was super friends and this show and new adventures yeah and so like i he imprinted on me as batman the sci-fi superhero Right. Batman, the guy with gadgets who fights wacky, super wacky, memorable vi- villains. Yeah. Because even as a little kid, the appearances of like the Joker, the Penguin and stuff in these early animated stuff still made a stronger impression than like Lex Luthor or Brainiac from Superman. Superman's yeah. side of the same coin. No, I mean, it did for me as well. Yeah. I just like, I don't know. I like, I don't think Superman was going through his best period when I was a kid. I <laughs> yeah. still remember the, like I was, the big comic event for Superman was Superman fights Muhammad Ali, which tells you where Man, Superman was at that Chris, point. It's crazy. Like when you go back and look at DC in the eighties up until 86. Yeah. If you ever dig through dollar bins and you pick up like DC books from the eighties, they're so schizophrenic in regards to trying to figure out who their readers are. Yeah. There's stuff that you can pick up. That's like from 84, 85 that still reads like silver age stuff. Oh yeah. Meanwhile, 
they have stuff that also feels like it's as mature as you would think. Well, the Flash mid eighties was doing like incredible stuff during that period, yeah. where he got where uh, Reverse Flash like killed Iris Allen yeah. during right at their their wedding, and you're just like, wow, this is so fucking dark. Like this is really cool and inventive. Nobody was doing anything like this. Whereas Batman and Superman would go back and forth from like really dark stuff to like, hey, Batmite, yeah, <laughs> or like. Superman, they were still determined that Superman was going to have the whole extended super family with like animals and all that shit yeah. for way too long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, Superman the, didn't get good again. I don't feel like till like the mid nineties. I, I think, I, I think that, um, I mean, really the, 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 the closing the door of the silver age Superman is Alamore's whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. Right. Right. And then moving into John Burns man of steel, which stuff. is, Late eighties, yeah, early late, 90s. late 80s. Yeah. yeah, you're talking, you're talking 87, 88, like immediately after crisis and then, and then the, the line wide reboot, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Anyways, but no, I have a huge soft spot for this Batman. <laughs> I've lost all ability to tell you whether it's good or not. I can't. If I tell you at the end of this that it's my pick of the week, um, no, yeah, I'm not, I'm just assuming it. that the listener is three, not allowing this I'm to just be assuming pick of the, the week. listener is like a three year old. <laughs> They're not though. <laughs> Uh, oh, Aquaman was the other one that was a huge part of that filmation. Yes. It was Superman, Superboy, Batman, Aquaman, and right. those were like the main ones. And it's the Aqualad everybody knows where he rides on the back of a seahorse with yeah. Aqualad. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty good. That was yeah. why I don't like Aquaman for most of <laughs> my life. That's why I do I've like always Aquaman. Been like, this is so dumb. I no, don't like this. Like, he rides on his big like, seahorse and goes, I've always <laughs> been on the whole, like, like I, he talks to fish. Fuck him. I don't know. Dun, 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 Again, dun, 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 Aquaman, I never dun, gave a dun, shit dun, dun. about until like maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, may, uh, I'll tell you when I first started to pay attention during Blackest Night, because there's a whole thing where like dead Aquaman, who I guess was dead at that point because everybody's dead at some point in DC, comes back with a bunch of fu- and calls a bunch of fucking undead sharks to attack everyone. And I'm like, dude. <laughs> well, I can tell <laughs> you when Aquaman first awesome. got my attention and I was four. And I watched Super Friends, and I was like, Aquaman's cool. Oh, I thought you had something else. That's all. <laughs> That's it? That's okay. all. That's not a defense. Yes, Your Honor, is. I move for a mistrial. <laughs> hey, if there's one, yeah, if there's one must-have this week, it's, it's, it's the Adventures not, of Batman. It really isn't. There's one pee on it if you see it in the store. <laughs> No. Yeah, that's what I'm calling it. Anyway, I'm sorry. There's no bonus features here. Uh, again, another reason. Who needs reason them to... when you have like 22 episodes of sheer bliss? Oh my God. We're going to end with what I wish I could say is our pick of the week. Maybe it will be because it's our, you know, I would say probably the best film we're reviewing. It just doesn't really come with anything new other than a really nice 4K transfer, which is training day on 4K. Like this is. A great, great, great movie. Uh, Antoine Fuqua basically launching his career with this film and then never doing anything even slightly as good <laughs> afterwards. I mean, he's done some other films that are good, but not even close. Like, like he was like the next big, everyone's like, he's going to be the next big thing. Well, maybe he just had the one movie in him. I don't know. He stayed at the top of like, he's kind of, he's, he's stayed at the top of this list of like, 
journeyman A-listers, which is like, yeah. it's different than being like an A-lister A-lister. He's made lots of movies yeah. that are fine. Yeah. Like, I like, I, I, I've liked a lot of, like, Southpaw, it's fine. You know, um, uh, uh, Tears of the Sun is fine. Uh, but a shooter people like more than me, but I guess it's fine. Um, King Arthur is not fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the equalizer is a pretty good. No, it's pretty good, mm. but it's not anywhere near great. You know what I mean? Mm. Like it just like he has never even come close to the really kind of 10 out of 10 perfection that is training day, at least for me. Um, I, I haven't watched it in a while. It's probably my third time seeing it. Uh, and it's, you know, like I said, seeing on 4K, I'm excited to get this. Ethan Hawke as the new kid on the force. It's long ago, 2001, long ago enough that Ethan Hawke would play the new kid on the force. Yeah. With Denzel Washington playing the older, more experienced cop. Um, now Ethan Hawke's character, Jake has been on the force for a little while, but it's his chance to take a big step up into narcotics and uh denzel washington's character alonzo is known as sort of being like you know the ultimate badass of the cops in this area they're left on their own they don't have to dress up as they don't have to wear cop uniforms they don't have to drive a cop car they don't have a lot of licensed cop guns they go around they do their thing uh but it's clear from the beginning as this sort of almost ride along at first that you know denzel washington's testing him like I don't know, man. What kind of guy are you? And the reason for that is because Denzel Washington is a dirty, 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 dirty cop who has totally rationalized all this shit to himself. Like all the stuff he's been doing built up over decades of doing this. He has rationalized that this is the only path forward to doing this. I like I am making a difference and making things better, but. You know, I'm also letting a lot of shit go and making a lot of money on the side and having sex with lots of people. Yeah. Um, Ethan Hawk, young cop, newly married, kid on the way. It's like, this will not stand, man. It's a twisty, fun, edge of your seat little thriller with one of Denzel Washington's best performances, I think. Like, it's a very strong, very hyperbolic exper- uh, experience watching him do this. That whole, like, <laughs> King Kong ain't got nothing on me. Like, that is him through half of this movie. I, I love the shit out of this movie, and I loved it rewatching it. It's that film that, wow, this is just as good as I remembered it, rewatching it, which is great. Made me a little more uncomfortable rewatching it nowadays. Okay. Uh, I think that there's a very, I think... There is a motif revealed through David Ayer's work of how, the yeah, yeah, of his point of view of um, minorities. Um, he tends to kind of always make minorities into criminals, mm. and it's weird in the wake of some of the stuff that we've dealt with, with like ACAB, all cops are bad kind of stuff, right? To have like the even though the film is from a black director. My thoughts started to wonder, uh, like, how this film would be if the races were switched and it was a young black cop and a white cop running roughshod through minority neighborhoods. Yeah. Like, that becomes a more politically charged film, but I don't think David Ayers, uh, he hasn't displayed that that's his M.O. through his films. isn't it weirdly, I felt it was weirdly interesting to have what you, that's what you'd expect 
is more the older experienced white cop is the one running roughshod to these things. And yet it is a black cop who should be aware of how he's making things worse. I think it, I think it to some degree reduces a political argument by, well, like by making the cop also black. I think it reduces that. I think it, it mutes that conversation somewhat, which is fine. And the movie, I don't think, I don't think that any of this is necessarily the point of the movie. I just think that 20 years removed, it became a thing where I was sort of like, it's, it's interesting in all that has happened. Um, this feels ever so slightly politically outmoded now. Mm-hmm. I'm not stuck in the time. Um, but there's, there were, and again, I, I think some of this honestly comes from the broader context of David Ayer's work, uh, than anything else. Um, that made me a little more uncomfortable for different reasons this time than it did um, last time. There's this idea kind of percolating right under the surface of like this being like a white man's worst nightmare Mm -hmm. Um, of like, Oh, I'm, I've, I'm going to have my morals completely compromised and, and I'm going to be scared by this black guy and we're going to drive into scary black neighborhoods and the whole time there's... And Hispanic. Yeah, and it's like... (laughs) I don't know. Something about it this time, it was a little bit more... It was sour in a different way than it was when I watched it 20 years ago. Now, all that said, that's just my personal feelings about it, like (laughs) watching it going, oh, this feels a little different and my brain is turning different. And I'm older, and I consider some things differently. And this movie from 20 years ago doesn't quite jibe with a lot of the thoughts that I have now. Now that that said, it's still a crackling cop movie with really, really good performances. Yeah, I was about it to is say. really tense. Like I, I like, hear what you're saying. Yes. I don't know if I'm a hundred percent on board with it, but I get that reaction. But Outside of all that, if you take all of that out of it, <laughs> if I take the entire, if I take the movie away from the movie, it's still really no, good no. Movie. <laughs> if you take the like mon, you know, the okay, with time comes a different perception of like. I mean, you could watch almost. I watched Rebel Without a Cause the other day, and I'm like, there's some racial stuff in here that's questionable. I'm like, yeah, but not at the, the fucking time. Just watch the movie as the movie. Like, now I agree, this is more recent, but I think, but I but, think a lot of it has to do more with the fact that Ayers has continued to write stock. Yeah. He writes right. all these minority characters as like stock ruffians. Well, maybe the prequel that they're filming right now called Training Day, Day of the Riot about uh, a young Alonzo Harris will, oh. will fix all that oh, for we'll you. we'll see. But, <laughs> but beyond that, like, yeah, Denzel Washington's like scary good. Ethan Hawke's scary good. Everybody in it's really good. What was it? There was the talk at the time. Who won the Oscar? It was Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke. Yeah. And even though Denzel clearly Denzel saying, was the guy. Yeah, but Denzel, that. I remember the quote was Denzel saying to Ethan Hawke, if I've done my job, then you'll win that Oscar. Right. Like, I guess it was probably after Ethan Hawke was nominated. Right. The Denzel was Even though was he, like, clearly Denzel Washington is the one who should have been nominated. Yeah. Like, yes, he is character acting his way through this thing, but it is such an extreme work that he's doing. It's just, it's, he's just, he's going all in that, yeah. He deserved it. And rarely do the guys playing like character actors get it. And Denzel's not always doing that, but here he is. He's just all in on this very absurd, almost absurdly exaggerated like personality. Here he deserved it. Hawk is 
keeping up with Washington in this film, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, which is hard. Um, yeah, I think it's a ridiculous that Hawk got it and Denzel was not nominated. But you've also got Scott Glenn in a, a nice little role in here. Uh, Eva Mendez, uh, Kurt, Cliff Curtis, who became much better known well after this film, who played a number of different bigger roles as, as his career went on. And little uh, cameos by Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Macy Gray. Uh, yeah. Snoop Dogg's pretty good in it. You know, yeah. when Snoop Dogg showed up, I'd forgotten he was in it. I just, all right, I completely forgotten. So when I, Snoop Dogg showed up, I was like, oh man, Snoop Dogg. I was like, this is going to take me right out of the movie. And then I was like, oh, he's, he's fine. Like, I Snoop Dogg's, Snoop Dogg's yeah, fine. No, he's always fine and stuff like that because he's just playing that. He's playing that character. He's playing Snoop Dogg. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, man, it's all cool. Like there's something about Snoop Dogg that even as a guy who like, knows like i know like two snoop dog songs and i like both of them but i'm like i'm anything after like 1992 or so for hip-hop i don't know what's happening anymore like i just kind of fell out of music largely altogether i just find him charming as fuck i don't know what to tell you like when i see snoop dog i'm like now that's a guy i'd like to hang out and smoke a joint yeah <laughs> just he seems like a cool guy and you don't want to smoke a pcp lace joint with Denzel Washington. <laughs> no he seems like snoop dogg seems like the kind of guy you're just like yeah i could be friends with that guy even with knowing nothing about him it's just he's got the whole i mean my god he's friends with what's her name uh uh the most anal retentive fucking like home improvement person in the world uh you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart. Like, how are those two actually friends, right? Because you can't not be friends with Snoop Dogg, is my theory. Like, once you meet him, you love him. I, I was just, something else that bothered me, and I, I just thought about this when I was talking about the PCP lace joint, is that in, for whatever reason, when I was younger, when I was closer in age to what Ethan Hawke is in this movie, uh, I probably empathized with him more. Mm-hmm. Now, I was like, Freaking get out of the car. Like, yeah. show some damn agency. Like, say no and put your foot down. Walk. Like, there's so much of just, like, him getting browbeat that I was like, what a loser <laughs> to some degree. Like, not, not every- You're just you know, mean, Not every man. scene, but it was just like this matter of at first I was really like, oh man, what, this is well, horrible Well, also for because him, you're older. Yeah. Now. Not that I'm like, older, when I'm you're younger, like, when, like, when you're, when you're no, in 20s you're and you're gonna, like, this is the job I've been wanting my whole career, what I've been going towards, yeah. here's this guy who's a legend. I get it. 100% get it. Yeah, like if you were like if you were just starting out in comics and Stan Lee was like smoke this PCB <laughs> joint with me or you're never getting a job at Marvel, you would be like, yeah, I'll smoke that joint. I just think it's funny when like your grandparents and stuff will tell you like as I got older, I didn't care what people told me to do. I just did my own thing, you know, and it's like you go, "Okay, grandpa," like, "Okay, grandma." And now I'm sitting here and I'm watching training day. I'm like, "Nope. Nope." I'd get out of the car. Nope. I don't care. No job's worth it. Like I was, I realized that, uh, this week, this is the week I became old. Okay. I mean, I, you know, back in the day, I accidentally smoked, uh, some, what we called love boat back then with PCP. Was, I watched them love. Boat it was, re- it was really good. Yeah. <laughs> it was really good. No, I was like, this is not bad. You were able to take like 11, 12 gunshots to the chest and just keep running. Well, see, that was like, <laughs> That shit did happen, but I'm just saying that that wasn't the normal experience. The normal experience was more like 
hallucination where like everything felt like you were just stoned, but then hallucinations would come in that were like so real that you couldn't tell that they weren't not real, but they'd be subtle stuff. Like, Oh, I'm petting a cat. Oh, this is a wonderful cat. And then your friend would come in like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm petting your cat. And he's like, I don't have a cat, dude. It'd be shit like that. That's, that's <laughs> such a strange drug. Cause you're introduced to it. Like we both grew up in the like Nancy Reagan era. Yeah. And you have like, as, as a, as a person out in the world, I've been around marijuana. Yeah. I have not ever laid my eyes on cocaine, but I've been around people that I knew had done cocaine in the, in my immediate vicinity. Right. And I don't know how people procure LSD, but same kind of deal as the cocaine where it's like, I realize that people can get it and that they have done it like the day before I've talked to them. Yeah. But PCP angel dust I'm now 47 years old and I've never heard anybody go like, oh, I just, it was I just, pretty good. I just did a bunch of PCP. It was pretty good. I mean, it was a big thing in DC. I have to remember. So like sometimes like, and there were a lot of people there who were like just hippies. It'd be like, yeah, as long as you just put a little bit on it, it's actually really good. And, and, but I didn't know. It was like, I was a group of people and I'd missed the earlier conversation. And I was like, uh, this tastes really weird. It's like, yeah, dude, it's love boat. I'm like, what is that? Uh, and they're like, oh, it's PCP. And of course, I too had heard all the stories yeah. of guys bashing their hands against cell doors <laughs> until they were blood and pulp and stuff. But it was just like, yeah, dude, this is really mellow. Who are you talking to? I'm talking to Steve. Steve, who's Steve? You know, Steve, the guy. There's no one sitting there. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that kind Steve. of shit. But everything else was normal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like that. Anyway. Uh, Anyways. So enough about my one PCP experience. Hey, it's a great movie. Yeah. Uh, Everybody knows it's a it's great a movie. It's a truly great movie. Which doesn't necessarily make it the pick of the week, despite the fact it's one of the best movies we, we not talked when about. Not Batman. No, we are not definitely... When there's there's no way in hell I'm putting that on recommended picks for but people. But it's my birthday. Yeah. It's not your birthday. You're right. It's not my birthday. <laughs> just, that was some Hail Mary. I just thought I'd <laughs> I know for a fact it was not your birthday. Damn it. Nice. It has been my birthday before, though. Uh, oh, yeah. Mine, too. <laughs> and my birthday present is it's not going to be pick of the week. <laughs> no, and usually I'm like, sure, okay, whatever. I don't care that much, but I despise this fucking thing. I can't, in good conscience, recommend it to anyone. I, okay, yeah. fine. And the training day uh, just doesn't really, it's the old uh, extras. Adele H it is. It's no new extras. What? No, it's not Adele <laughs> H. I don't, you know, John. I'm going to have to say it's probably Crimson Rivers was the best of all of them because they had some solid bonus features with this. It's a great discovery film for a lot of people, especially of like, I feel like today, I think people in their 20s would see this and go, wow, that was really good. How have I never heard of this before? Do I have to agree with you? you know, I have I to doesn't agree have to be with Batman. It, it doesn't have to be Batman. Definitely not Batman. But I kind of... I kind of think Millionaire's Express should be a movie that more people should love. Okay. I'm f- okay with that. Yeah. Millionaire's Express? If we both have to agree. Yeah. Let's go with Millionaire's Express then. Okay. All right. Fair if, enough. If not, we We're can, both we giving our opinion it. on this, but I yeah. usually default to the other person. Just Batman is past my ability to do that. Sorry. I, Millionaire's Express was a little bit more unique than Crimson Rivers to me. So okay. I, I give it, I give it that edge. Millionaire's Express it is. So you want to reiterate again real quick what's well, going really on? Batman. Yeah. Uh, with you, you're going to Seattle and you're going to be at a show there. Uh, or not in a show there. You've got a show playing there. Yes. A movie that I'm, you are the star of. I am in a movie called Make Popular Movies. It is about, uh, big budget filmmaking and it comes out Memorial Day weekend, which is nice and ironic. I like the synergy of 
our little uh, indie improv movie coming out in the biggest summer weekend of the entire blockbuster season. <laughs> it's basically the Independence Day of this year. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, May 27th, 7 p.m., the Beacon Cinema over in the Beacon Hill neighborhood of Seattle, Washington. And it has I a giant robot spider in it. Uh, it. It is true that it actually does. That's not a lie. Like there is one in the movie. Like there is. I yeah. yeah. Um, there's like cyborgs and transforming cars. Yeah. There, there really are. I, that's not. I'm not. That's not irony. That's being truthful. Spoiler. This is a meta film. Mm-hmm. Like Leonor uh, will never die. Yeah. It's a meta Hollywood film. Yeah. With John Golson as the the prick mm-hmm. who's the lead star. Oh, and by the time, well, it's, it'll be over with by the time. It's like an out, indie, so. the player. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's similar. Yeah, there's some similarities there. It's yeah. like, uh, what's the, what's the, uh, I can't remember. What's the, what's the guy's name? Tom DeLillo or whatever that made those like nineties and God spoke was one of his movies. And then oh, like, I know what you're uh, talking Johnny about. Johnny Swade or something with Brad Pitt was like one of his yeah, movies. Yeah. Yeah. And he used to make these indie movies about making movies. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like that. If you like those. Yeah. yeah. If you like those, it's kind of like that. If, if, if you, you like, don't like those, it's if you not like, like Filmation's that at all. Batman, it's pretty much the live action Filmation's Batman. Which you might think, oh, wouldn't that just be Batman? But no, it's make popular movies. Seven p.m. May twenty seventh, Beacon Beacon Cinema. Oh God, help us all. 